My sermon today is entitled, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. A few years ago, Pastor Javier Vieira and his wife, Miriani, wandered into New York Historical Society to see an exhibit that had been recommended to them by a friend. The exhibit was entitled, Without Sanctuary. It was an array of photographs and postcards which had been collected by the collector James Allen. These photographs and postcards were of lynchings that had taken place throughout the United States. The exhibit was picture after picture of a limp body hanging from the end of a rope. The images were grotesque and disturbing, says Vieira. However, what was most disturbing about these photographs, says Vieira, was not the bodies of the victims. In each picture was a gathering of ordinary people who came to watch the atrocities take place. The lynching was a social event. People dressed up for the occasion. It was clear that these lynchings were a cultural phenomenon. They were events not to be missed. In one picture, as a body is hanging from the noose, you can see in the background a man smoking a cigar with a broad smile on his face. Others were sipping beer, gossiping, smiling, and laughing. A couple flirts and enjoys a romantic moment. Little boys beam with broad smiles, seemingly filled with pride to be a part of such an auspicious occasion. There's something else, however, to the troublesome nature of these supposedly fine, upstanding people in these pictures. The images of these events had not only been documented on film, says Vieira, they were also turned into postcards. They were cherished mementos to be mailed to family and friends. Did you know that nearly 5,000 African-American men and women were lynched here in America between the years 1880 and 1940? This was, the dec this was decades after the Civil War and slavery was no more. The evils of white supremacy continued unabated. If you and I were to look at these images today, we would be repulsed from them. What I want to remind you, however, is that these images are not from Rome 2,000 years ago. These images from, are from America 100 years ago. And the same dark heart that beats in the heart of our ancestors beats within many people even today. As much as we would like to think differently, human nature has not changed in these past hundred years. That is why any appeal to discrimination, prejudice, hatred, whether against people of another race or another religion, or whatever prejudice that might be cannot be tolerated not by people whose Lord was hung on a cross while mocking soldiers gambled for his garments below. This month of February is designated as Black History Month. 
As an American history major on the college and graduate level, I have studied both the positive and the negative aspects of what happened since the founding of our country. Unfortunately, we are still living with the results of racial prejudice and injustice that continues to this day. As many of you know, I started a book study on James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Half a century ago, James Cone lived in the midst of civil unrest, racial strife, and political divisions. He wrote in the wake of the civil rights movement, a number of political assassinations, ongoing national upheaval, heated social division, and even a presidential impeachment and resignation. Black power was on the rise. Protests were on the move. Institutions were being transformed, cities on fire, and new moral, social, and theological questions were being asked in American churches. In his book, Cone explores the spiritual world of African Americans like no one has before him. As Henry Louis Gates Jr. said, he turns his attention to two symbols that dominated not only the spiritual world, but also the daily life of African Americans in the 20th century. Though separated by nearly two millennia in history, the cross and lynching tree are inseparable in the American Christian experience. Both are symbols of death, brutal means of execution. The cross, Christianity symbol of God's work of salvation in the world, is present in churches, at street corners, on billboards, and hanging on, around the necks of the devout and skeptical alike. Meanwhile, the lynching tree, the United States symbol of white supremacy and black oppression, is hidden from sight and hidden from conversation too. Cone believes that until both are finally realized and understood, the experience of American Christians is incomplete. Both Jesus and black people were publicly humiliated, subjected to the utmost indignity and cruelty. These two symbols, the cross and lynching tree, are object lessons for us. What I mean by that is that being lynched was the equivalent of being crucified. In the eyes of the Romans, Jesus was no different than his Galilean disciples. In their eyes, he was a statistic and a suspect, a coward and a criminal. At best, he was a backward peasant who needed to be kept in his place. At worst, he was a threat to the established order of Roman rule, which had to be put down like other Jewish rebellions in the past. Their response, of course, would be cruelty and violence and ultimately crucifixion. So too, in order to keep blacks in their place, the white supremacists used slavery, 
lynchings, Jim Crow laws, segregation, and mass incarceration. It is the sum total of four centuries worth of second-class status, subhuman treatment, perpetual suspicion, condescension, and humiliation. Yet, Cohn writes, in the mystery of God's revelation, black Christians believe that just knowing that Jesus went through an experience of suffering in a matter that was similar to theirs, gave them faith that God was with them, even in their suffering on the lynching trees, just as God was present with Jesus on the cross. It is their faith in the God of the cross that gave black Christians the courage to bear the suffering they were forced to bear, the courage to find meaning and hope in the desperate situations, and finally, the courage to fight against the political and social structures that had enslaved them. No wonder that the black church played a key role in the civil rights movements of the 1960s and their pursuit of Justice continues to this day. James Cone's conclusion is prophetic. In a society which lives with one million black people behind bars and a legalized death penalty that is primarily reserved, though not exclusively, for people of color, one is forced to ask whether we are really done with the phenomenon of lynching. What Cone demands has happened to the hate and the indifference. Have they simply disappeared? He thinks not. The hypocrisy today would lie with a Christianity which silently fears, despises, and forgets these incarcerated and condemned masses. I grew up in Jacksonville, Illinois, a town about the size of Freeport, 35 miles west of Springfield. I graduated from public high school in 1965, and several decades later, I attended a high school reunion. The main speaker was a fellow graduate, Creston Whitaker, who was the star basketball player on the team. What really stood out in his speech to everyone that was present is when he shared an experience that he had with the team while they were on the road. The bus stopped at a restaurant and went inside to eat, and the restaurant owner immediately told them that they do not serve blacks, meaning Creston, of course, who was the only black person on the team. And hearing that, they immediately got up and walked out of the restaurant. Creston said that much, that meant so much to him, and hearing that meant so much to me, even now. When I was in junior high school, my parents divorced in 1959. My father remarried shortly thereafter. My brother Steve and I lived with our dad and stepmother and my brother and I would go to stay with our mom who had moved to Miami, Florida. We stayed with her a month in the summer. 
And there for the first time in that southern state of Florida, I saw water fountains and bathrooms marked white and colored. I could hardly believe my eyes. I even had an aunt who lived in Houston, Texas at the time, who said if a black person walked into her church, she would walk right out. How could a person who was so kind to me and to my family be so cruel to people of another race? One day, a year or two later, Preston and I decided to get together for the first time and rode our bicycles down a local street when an older boy saw us and shouted out, "In lover, I won't say the word, but you know which word that is. We just kept riding on. It wasn't too long after that that my stepmother wanted to talk to me. She said that I was no longer to spend time with Creston because it might hurt my father's law practice. Now, I don't believe that my parents were racist. I never heard anything at home that was derogatory about, about black people or anybody else. And we were told to respect everyone. In fact, one Christmas around 1960, I rode with my father to Creston's home because his father was the collector of our garbage. We were invited into their home and my dad was going to hand over a Christmas card and he remembered that he had forgotten to put money in it. He quickly took out a $20 bill from his billfold and put it in the card and gave it to Creston's dad. Now I looked up to see what $20 in 1960 money would be worth now in 2022. Amazingly, it would be worth $189 in purchasing power today. That was a generous Christmas gift. Though I don't believe my stepmother was racist, she made a racist demand to me. As an obedient child, I obeyed that racist demand by not getting together with Creston again. And I still feel bad to this very day that I had to end the relationship. By the way, following his senior year in 1965, Creston was named All-State in basketball, honorable mention All-State in football, and honorable mention in All-State in baseball. He was inducted into the high school's Hall of Fame in 1983. To be sure, we have made great progress in racial justice over the years, but we still have a long way to go to fulfill the words of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We still have a long way to go to fulfill the words of our Pledge of Allegiance with life, liberty, and justice for all. 
Unfortunately, a lot of Americans do not know about the racial injustice that have been inflicted on people of color in our nation's history, including blacks, Native Americans, and Asians. To add insult to injury, for example, there are many school districts in our country where high school teachers are not allowed to honestly and openly deal with the subject of racism. That is a tragic part of our history. In fact, in the South, there are still high school textbooks that say that slavery was not so bad and that the Civil War was a war between the states, primarily over states' rights rather than slavery. And I'll bet there are still some people in the South who would call the Civil War still the War of Northern Aggression. They are dead wrong. Sadly, our country is still plagued by racial violence and injustice more than 150 years after the Civil War. I know we were all shocked by the video of the Minneapolis police officer, Daryl Chauvin, kneeling more than nine minutes on the neck of George Floyd, causing his death. Likewise, we were later also horrified by the brutal killing of Armand Marquez Arbery, who was just out for a run in a white neighborhood. I wonder how many other racial crimes are committed when there are not video cameras present. Consider this. Today, African-American incomes on average are about 60% of average white incomes. African-American household wealth is about 5% of white household health wealth. One principal way most middle-class families in the country gain their wealth is from equity they have in their homes. So this enormous difference between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio is attributable to the federal housing policy, which furthered segregation efforts by refusing to insure mortgages in and near African-American neighborhoods, a policy that is known as redlining. At the same time, the FHA was subsidizing builders who were mass producing uh, entire subdivisions for whites in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s with the requirement that none of the homes be sold to blacks. Therefore, many black people are more likely to live in segregated neighborhoods with poor housing stock, failing schools, inadequate municipal services, lower quality food in stores, fewer banks made up by expensive check cashing outlets, less information about potential high paying jobs, more concentrated poverty, and more violence mostly due to that concentrated poverty. And there's not much that black people can do to, to change this since their homes are worth less than houses in white suburbs, they are accruing less home equity and the property tax base in their neighborhoods can't pay for well-funded schools. White supremacy is not only directed to black people. 
Since the start of the COVID pandemic, racial crimes have greatly increased against Asian Americans, in part because the virus is believed to have started in China. Lately, what really makes me angry are the state legislators that are trying to make voting more difficult for people of color by limiting voting days or hours, the number of voting places and ballot boxes, and perhaps more, most importantly, who counts the votes. The insurrection of January 6th, a year ago at our nation's capital was a politically coordinated direct threat to our very democracy itself. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are called upon to speak out and to act against the evils of white supremacy. The Old Testament book of Proverbs contains some great wisdom. Like the Old Testament prophets, our reading today says, speak out for those who cannot speak for the rights of all the destitute. Speak out, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Likewise, our scripture lesson from Luke's gospel speaks of social justice. Jesus enters the local synagogue and from the prophet Isaiah, he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down as the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were upon him. Then Jesus began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Here Jesus declared the purpose of his life, which was to be in ministry to care for the needs of others, especially the hungry, the poor, the downtrodden, and those suffering from social injustice. Social justice was also lifted up when Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. As followers of Jesus Christ, what can we modern day Christians at Faith United Methodist Church do today to work for racial social justice? Here are several that I urge you to do. First, pray. Ask God to show you the truth of our sin and how we might become agents of God's justice, mercy, love, and recreation. Cry out to God for guidance. Listen for the voice of Jesus in meditation, Bible study, worship, and conversation to guide our ways. Second, Read important award-winning books on the subject of racial justice. There are a number, number of them that have been published lately. Here are several that I highly recommend. I have read them all in the last few years, and I urge you to read at least one of them. And the church is in the process of buying these, and we'll put them on display 
one uh, Sunday morning, and then they will be in our church library where you can check them out. The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. This book compares the symbol of Jesus' cross to the lynching tree used by black Americans and the theological symbolism between the two. Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. A caste system, Wilkerson writes, is an artificial construction, a fixed embedded ranking of human value that sets the presumed racial supremacy of one group against the presumed inferiority of another group. One of the things I learned from this book is that Nazis in Germany early on studied laws against blacks in the South to be adopted and used against Jews in Germany. The Warmth of Other Sons, the epic story of the Great Migration, also by Isabel Wilkerson. This book tells one of the great untold stories in American history. The decades-long migration of black citizens who fled the South for northern and western cities in search for a better life. She tells the true story of three unique individuals who felt compelled to make such a move. Stamped from the beginning, the definitive, definitive history of racist ideas in America by Abram X. Kendi. This book is about how racist ideas were created, spread, and deeply rooted in American society. This book was highlighted at the Washington Island Forum sponsored by the Wisconsin Council of Churches that I attended a few years ago. It was attended by about 200 people from 11 different denominations. And the new Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. The author is a civil rights lawyer who tells the disturbing story of why young black men make up the majority of more than two million people in American prisons. Law enforcement went after racial minorities, drug use, which was similar to the drug use used by whites. For example, the conviction sentences were less for the use of the more expensive form of cocaine, which was used by whites, but much longer sentences for conviction of the use of crack, another form of cocaine, which was cheaper, which was used by blacks. There was also less political pushback for drug raids in black neighborhoods than white, so the police concentrated on the former. Third, I urge you to connect. Talk to people within and beyond the church who are doing anti-racist work. Ask questions. Listen and respect diverse voices. Learn how and where racism shows its ugly face in our community and nation and how others are harmed by its effects. Talk to persons of color to hear about their perspectives and experiences. Fourth, show up. Be sensitive to the pain of others. Attend a prayer vigil. Join a demonstration. Organize a church school class to read, discuss, and respond to institutional racism. Tell church leaders, community leaders, and elected officials 
that you want to learn to help with dismantling racism in your community. And the fifth act, support cross-racial, cross-cultural ministries in your area with money and your voice. Preach and teach about the harm racism does and how it offends God. Challenge elected officials to encode anti-racism policies and practices. Join the ongoing work for racial justice in our church and world. And don't forget to always vote and vote for candidates that seek the common good and racial justice for all. So my friends, we are called to pray, read, connect, show up and act as we pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Amen.